is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent decades. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience, both for me and for my interviews from around the world. In today's program, we will be talking to Dave Gardner, a management consultant, speaker, blogger, and author based in Silicon Valley in California. Dave is author of the book, Mass Customization, an enterprise-wide business strategy published in 2009. Uh, and I understand Dave now has a, a new book in the works, so maybe we'll ask him about that. Through his career over the last 40 years or so, Dave has held management positions in engineering, manufacturing, sales, marketing, customer service, and product management in a variety of industries. And today he leverages his skills in processes and operations to resolve and simplify the complex issues his clients face with people, process, and technology in their businesses. So welcome, Dave, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Patrick. You're very, you're very welcome. Welcome. So maybe, Dave, to get started, if you could give us uh, maybe a quick overview of your career to date, which I think spans 40 years or more maybe at this stage. Is that right? It does. Um, I grew up here in Silicon Valley. I went to San Jose State and got a, a bachelor's in speech communication and then went to Santa Clara University uh, to earn an MBA. And uh, I've been involved in industry. I started fairly early. Uh, my early career uh, was in music as a professional trumpet player and a leader of different bands that played at uh, all kinds of different events. And uh, I also had some experience as a draftsman. Uh, draftsman is what we call probably a computer-aided design person, but uh, back in, the, in that era, we all did things with uh, paper and pencil. And uh, I also was uh, an engineering change analyst for a company. And this is while I was still in high school. So it kind of set me up for um, a career in manufacturing. So my early career was more on the configuration management side of things. And um, in other words, providing the bridge and the communication system between engineering and the rest of the organization. And that was kind of an important spot to be in um, as it, um, it, it taught me that uh, engineers aren't particularly good at communicating uh, with the other organizations, but they want to have the people who support them in their organization. So interestingly enough, uh, I'm getting a lot of interest now, um, again, in this configuration management area as companies struggle to get ERP implementations um, done without that communication bridge. Uh, things get pretty pretty uh, haphazard over in the ERP space. You really can't do it effectively. So all of a sudden, a number of companies have been reaching out to me for assistance in that area. Um, the other thing that I kind of grew interested in was um, I was with a company called Tandem Computers back in the uh, late late seventies, and um, they had the highly configurable products. And there was one guy in the company who would be called out of meetings to go configure the orders. And then he'd come back into the room, you know, 45 minutes later and say, oh, boy, you won't believe this. They forgot to sell this, and they forgot this, and they forgot this, and this other thing. And so we're going to end up giving away about $80,000 worth of hardware to make this work because they'd already accepted the order. So you couldn't really go back to the customer and say, hey, you know, we forgot to tell you, you need to spend another $80,000. So we would just eat it. And so as, as I watched this, I said to myself, this is, this is wrong. This is bass backwards. We should be 
helping the salespeople get it right up front so we can kind of seamlessly pass this information into the factory. Uh, and um, so that's where my interest grew. So there, there was an expansion. I was with a startup company and had done the configuration management systems. And the board was getting very frustrated that we didn't have a price list and we didn't have a way to forecast and we didn't have a way to configure orders for our configurable product. And so the board tapped me to resolve those issues. And that kind of set me on this path of mass customization and uh, what I'm now calling for my my newest book that will be coming out uh, probably in 2021 is uh, called The A la Carte Customer. And that's how you help people configure orders uh, for what they want. So that that's going to be the branding. And it will be for both products and services, not just products. And so I've already had a project this year with a Fortune 50 bank to look at that very issue about how do we have more configurability and how do we connect better with customers. So those are the types of things I've been doing. Okay. And is this like the concept that we saw with with Dell where you go onto their website and you basically build the set that you want? Is it something like that? That's correct. Yeah, okay. Yes. So Dell has been a client, and I have uh, helped them look at the strategy of the way they approach it. I think they can do better. When you're just selling PCs, it's pretty simple. Whereas you expand more into the enterprise space, you need another level of information to help the uh, dealer network and the salespeople be more effective doing what they're doing. And that, that's, that's where you, know, you use the word leverage, Patrick, early on in here. And I think that that's, that's really what you're trying to do. If you can leverage the information that you have internally and share it with people, it, it improves the efficacy all the way along. There's no disappointment for customers. Um, and, of course, you have to have what I call, it's kind of like an air traffic control system. You have things that are leaving the price list and new things that are coming onto the price list. And how do you build a backlog for new products before they're even released? Uh, there's a way to do that and to really uh, make it very, very a uh, high level of efficacy. You, you know, Patrick, on your question, you asked, you know, who do, who did I think was one of the best companies in, in the whole supply chain space? And of course, I look at supply chain as being a very holistic thing from quote to cash. So, um, and everything in between, uh, we had probably the best example in the world here in, in Apple. Mm-hmm. Apple goes from zero to a thousand miles an hour in, in, a, in a few weeks when they decide to release a product. So when they have a new iPhone, you know, they'll, they'll need three, five million units um, and uh, and need them fast. I mean, they just announced what the iPhone 12 and, and they're trying to get a lot of holiday sales going and uh, they do it and they do it consistently and they do it with high quality. When you when you encountered this issue back in the day. Did you see yes. it as a communications issue or a, a, a data or information management issue? Or what exactly was the problem? It was really a structural issue and a communications issue. You know, if you don't set expectations, um, let's say, for example, we were to go into a restaurant and and the, the menu said, uh, we sell food. And there's no guidance as to what's available. I use a lot of restaurant metaphors because people... People can relate to that. Uh, Once you build out a menu and list what what you have on there, then it begins to tell you, okay, what what ingredients do I need to have available to to make a Denver omelet or to make a 
uh, corned beef and hash and eggs or, or whatever it might be. But the point is, is if you don't set expectations, if, if I was to walk in the restaurant and they said, just, just tell us what you want and we'll make it for you. Well, they're, they're not going to be able to do it efficiently. They're going to be paying a lot more for the ingredients because it's going to be a one-off every time or what I call prototype quantities in the, in the manufacturing world. So th- that's the, the problem is that if you don't uh, think about this appropriately and set it up appropriately, uh, the efficiencies go way down, the lead times go out, the on-time deliveries shift. It's just, it's, it's really kind of a nightmarish situation. And the problem is, um, for example, uh, let's take Bombardier, for example. They, they, they have two major business units. One is in trains that run um, people through towns, and then they have the, the aircraft side of the business. And, and they're what I call an engineer-to-order business. And so engineer-to-order is, uh, they leverage it a bit because they, they do make, for example, the Bay Area Rapid Transit System here in, in California. Uh, here in San Francisco Bay Area, I think they're buying about 1,300 cars from them. So they're not doing a one-to-one kind of relationship, but the ramp up was was very slow and it was very problematic. And they had a lot of um, design issues that had to be fixed before they could do the ramp up. And of course, the, the problem was is that that first delayed getting the, the the new train cars into the into the system by years. Um, and so, you know, these projects start out behind schedule anyway, because you have to wait to get the funding from the government and, uh, it just puts a lot of pressure on everybody. So, um, I, I think the thing is, is if Bombardier, I, I spoke with Bombardier at a conference in Montreal and they said that, um, I said, well, when are you going to adopt, uh, more of a mass customization type model where you kind of present options and let people configure the trains the way they want? And the, the guy that was there said, oh, we, won't, we were not even going to think about that for probably another 10 or 15 years. It's interesting because if a company does that, they can stack the deck in their, in their favor right from the outset um, because it gives them the, 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 the field of um, possibilities is, is narrowed and that's still quite sufficient for the, for the customer. That's right. So, for example, when I worked with the fire truck manufacturer in Florida, um, a normal fire truck uh, you see running around town here in the U.S. anyway. I think the trucks are a little different in, in Ireland. But um, it, it would draw from, there would be about 200 different option categories. And from that, you would draw draw in about from 9,000 different options to configure a truck. Now, that's not something you can keep track of in your head. It's it's something where you need a, a, a almost a guided selling solution to help people figure out how do we configure the trucks? What are the possibilities? Oh, there's something I need here that isn't here. You have to go to the manufacturer and ask them if they can do that. And in order to say, can we do that? We have to figure out what does the costing need to look like? What does the pricing need to look like? Uh, how long would it take us to ramp that up? Um, and, and so it's, uh, this wildly configurable trucks like fire trucks. Um, it's a, it's a very interesting industry. Uh, there was two major players in the U.S. Uh, that had about 50 or 52 percent market share in North America, and then there was another hundred companies behind them that could uh, 
uh, also sell on that marketplace. So how, how what long, was interesting. How long have you been bringing this expertise to the market as an independent consultant? Since the early 90s. Okay, so we're talking, well, you're getting on for 30 years, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how would you describe your ideal clients today? Boy, my ideal clients are, are anything from startup companies, uh, like a company I'm speaking to in Toronto, uh, to the Dells and Cisco's of the, of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so Fortune 50 to, to startups. I don't really target any specific industry. I, t- I try to target people who have um, uh, an actual need and a desire to do something about it. And how would you say they are better off after having worked with you? Well, they say that they're that they're far better off because uh, the efficiencies go way up. They have a, more of a, a systematic process. You become less people dependent and more process dependent, and that enables you to grow a company, to add people into the the situation. And it doesn't take them, you know, five to 10 years to kind of ramp up their knowledge or products. Mm-hmm. I had one client, um, back in the year 2000. It was really interesting. It was a small 45 person company that was an engineer to order business. And, um, they had what they called the, the, the newbies and the old bees, which is a thing from romper room way back when. And, and they would tell people, look, it's going to take you 10, 15, 20 years to really catch up and understand our business. And the old people took advantage of the people because they wouldn't share their, their expertise or their knowledge, and there was no way to capture it. It was all kind of in their heads. And so when I talked to the president about that, I said, look, we're going to shift you from being people-dependent to process-dependent, and that's going to enable you to grow your business. And he got really excited about that because he knew he had this, this terrible problem. Uh, in American manufacturers and North American manufacturers, we see an awful lot where people are now reaching retirement age and leaving companies and out the door goes the expertise that they had in their heads. So it's uh, it's a real serious challenge. How do you capture that expertise and leverage that expertise before they leave? That's Sounds one of like, the great challenges. Yeah. Sounds like your clients are companies that have almost a consultative sales process because they have configurable products, sometimes quite complex products like a, like a fire engine, for example. Um, yes. And I, I've been told that companies like that are suffering at the moment uh, with COVID because they're not able to engage in the same way in that consultative sales process. Have you come across right. that, that challenge and how are companies coping with that at the moment? Well, you know, we're all doing business with Zoom. We're, we're not traveling we're not doing face-to-face uh meetings as much and so it, it is adding to the complexity of interacting with folks it's 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 harder to have uh great relationships with people so for example in the fire truck business we had a lot of dealers across the u.s we did not sell directly to the fire departments and so those dealers in different regions would um, handle that the customer relationship representing the factory. And so the better prepared we could make them to um, interact with, with customers, the better off the company was. And it was the, where we suffered the big breakdowns was when we had dealers 
you know, we had dealers who would sell 100, 150, 200 trucks a year. And then we had others that would sell only one or two. Maybe they were a, a, an automobile dealership or a Freightliner dealership, and they decided they'd sell some fire trucks. Um, those people lack the expertise. They never really developed the skill to sell the sell the trucks because they 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 just didn't do it with enough frequency to ever really get educated about it. And the, and yet they were reluctant to ask for help. So it was, it was you know we had widely varying uh, needs. Um, we had trucks that sold anywhere from say a hundred thousand dollars U.S. to 1.3 million dollars U.S. and uh, like the the big airport rescue firefighting uh, mm. vehicles with penetrating booms that we could puncture the the cabin of an aircraft and spray water and foam in. Um, so the, the the complexity and variety was was tr- tremendous, just absolutely tremendous. And if you look at Dell and look at all the products products and product lines they have, even in the let's say the tablets or the laptops or the desktop computers or the the enterprise storage systems or the on and on and on and on and on, uh, you know, the, the, all their their servers and everything else that they do. If it, it, it is more of a consultative cell when you have a lot of configurability. And the question is, how easy can you make it for people to do business with you? How, how simple can it be to get a quote? So a configure price quote, CPQ, uh, is really, I, I kind of see where it's at. And, um, if you get that right up front, then things can move pretty seamlessly through the rest of the organization. Mm-hmm. If there's chaos on the front end of that process, there's chaos through the rest of the organization. We, we might just jump into our helicopter for a minute, Dave, and we'll, we'll fly up above the, uh, above the fray for a minute and just get your views on some of the things that have been going on in the world over, over the last uh, number of years. So you and I have spoken on various occasions yes. of, you know, the last four or five years, Trump's election, Brexit, um, now COVID and lots of volatility and so on. So what's your view of how companies in the U.S. are looking at supply chain currently in the light of all of that volatility and uncertainty uh, culminating in COVID? And and what are they thinking about uh, for the future? Well, with President Trump, we've had a lot of erratic um, behavior. And I, I think that the market, stock market's going up. The stock market, by the way, is not the economy that, that President Trump would claim that it is. It's, it's, it's more a barometer of future hope and expectation for how things are going to go. So I think people are really looking forward to President Biden because the, the markets are telling us that they're, that they're looking forward to him because he can bring a calming effect to things. You know, the, all the, the, the things like tariffs with uh, China have have very negatively impacted companies. Trump seems to think, and I I don't understand why, that the tariffs are paid by China, and they're not. They're paid by our manufacturers. Uh, So, for example, I had a a bicycle manufacturer who sold highly customized bikes, and uh, all their steel that bikes are made from really comes from China because we're not manufacturing steel here in the U.S. anymore. So they've, they've suffered some challenges because not only do they have the surcharge of having to add to the material cost, they've also had this, the strong headwinds of, of a strong uh, 
uh, dollar, which has made their products more expensive by 10, 15, 20% in other regions of the world. So it's uh, it's been a very, very, very tough time for them. Yeah, they don't seem to, um, the protectionists don't seem to understand the concept of comparative advantage because, you know, if you follow their logic um, that, you know, charging tariffs is more beneficial than trade. Well, then if we all closed our borders and just charged each other tariffs, we'd be better off than if we traded with each other in, 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 in free <laughs> right. trade, you know? It's crazy stuff. Um, it is. So wh where do you think we are then with the process of globalization of which, you know, supply chain is uh, a manifestation or a cause? You know, it's almost like a circular thing. But do you think we're globalization has peaked? Are we already going backwards? Are we just in a blip or is it turning into a different form? What's your own take on it? My own take is that it's only going to get bigger. You know, the, the Americans are uh, a bit arrogant and we think that we've invented everything, but globalization really started um, in places like Europe and Japan and other places where uh, if you look at Japan, for example, if they only sold to people on that island, um, it would be an okay marketplace, but it wouldn't be a great marketplace. So what if what is uh, uh, South Korea and Japan and other Finland, other nations doing? Um, so we, when I was in the fire truck business, we had a supplier that we had purchased up in Finland, and they were having uh, parts made in Estonia. Uh, they were selling globally. Uh, everywhere because there just wasn't and we said why are you doing that and they said well there just isn't enough market here in finland for what we do so we've always been globalized companies countries uh globalization economy and i i, I think certainly ireland is uh, a globalization um situation as well so right. I, I think it's only going to get bigger um if we can keep wars down and uh, begin to think more globally, then I think we can have a lot more success and enjoy a lot more peace. Yeah, it'd be, interesting, um, it'd be interesting to see when the new administration comes in, how the mood music changes on multilateralism and the international stage. It'll be interesting to see over the next year how that evolves. I think that, that um, people here want to have relationships and customers all over the world. You know, one of the things that I learned about Dell when I worked there was when you have a, a globalized country, if, let's say, for example, Dell wants to sell all their product lines in India. India, you know, we laugh about tech support in India, but India said, we need jobs. We're, we're happy to buy products from you, but we'd like you to bring some jobs to India. What can you do to help make that happen? And so... With that in mind, that sets up kind of a win-win relationship. It's not like everything happens out of North America, and um, you know, so we they have supply relationships all over the world. They have uh, there's a lot of uh, manufacturing in Mexico. Um, I don't think people realize that Mexico is a G20 country. Yes, it's it, it's it's quite an economy. And there's a, there's a lot of potential there. I, I have a lot of contact with the Mexican embassy here in uh, in Dublin, and Mexico is our largest trading partner in Latin America. And they are are they? Yeah, they are set. If they don't, um, um, you know, if there are no 
unexpected occurrences in the coming future, they could be a top 10 economy in the world within, you know, 10, 15 years. They could. So, and, uh, But the point is we have to do that by collaborating, not just by trying to stick a flag in the turf and saying this is it. This, this whole nationalistic thing that we see with Brexit and we've seen with uh, Donald Trump, I think, is really um, not 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 a good way to look at things. This protectionist thing, like we don't want immigrants. And, you know, if you look at a lot of the great companies here in the U.S., um, a lot of them have been formed by immigrants. Tesla, for example, Apple, uh, Steve Jobs was uh, did not come from a, an American family. And Apple is one of the most valuable companies in the world. As we uh, as we go into our last couple of minutes now, what kind of things do you like to do outside of work? You only mentioned playing the trumpet earlier. Do you still do that? I, I only play taps for military funerals at this point. That's something that uh, I can easily ramp up in a day or two and uh, go do it. Um, what do I like to do? I really like working on on business things, writing and uh, connecting with people and speaking and trying to help people develop a different mindset uh, from where they are to maybe a place that they need to go at, or move uh, directionally. So uh, I have another book called The 100 Insights that um, where I've taken some 100 blog posts that talk about customer experience and customer service and uh, customization and innovation and other things were just kind of my observations about the world to kind of shake shake things up a bit. And I, I've had many people call me and tell me, look, I I take these into my staff meetings and we talk about these issues uh, because it gives us a jumping off point to to think about our own business. And that that's that's exactly why I write it. I want people to. Not just read and go, that was nice, and then throw it away. I, I like them to think about it and think about how does it impact my company and my world? What do we need to be thinking about? What are we not thinking about that we should be thinking about? And where can our listeners then find out more about you, about your business, your your writing and your thinking and so on? Yeah, my my uh, website is davegardner.biz. That's D-A-V-E-G-A-R-D-N-E-R dot biz d-i-z and um there's a lot of information there a lot of articles uh, things that i've done over the over the years so uh that would be a great place for them to start okay well dave it's been uh, an absolute pleasure talking to you today and uh, wish you the very best both professionally and personally and many thanks for being here with us today my pleasure thank you patrick Thanks also to our listeners and remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, check out my blog on albalogistics.com or pick up my book, International Supply Chain Relationships on Amazon, Google Books or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until next time.